Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, those of you who know me pretty well know that Man, I have very few bad days. Uh, just kind of go through life and, and pretty much just get up happy, go to bed happy, live happy. And, uh, you know, every once in a while you have a day that kind of makes you blue, but, but basically happy all the time. And, and even for a guy like myself that's just really kind of happy all the time, what a great weekend we had. Uh, the guys got together on Friday night to, uh, to eat massive quantities of meat that their wives who were at a retreat would not normally allow them to do. So that was a win-win right there. We got to do it and they didn't get to watch it. <laughs> so, uh, Ellen came home from the ladies' retreat uh, yesterday afternoon and just was walking on cloud nine. She just thought it was a phenomenal weekend together. I want to thank Sophia Newton and uh, uh, Lori Brown, uh, the, the chair and the co-chair, for, for planning that ladies' retreat. They said it was just awesome. And a funny thing, Ellen goes, now I know you're preaching through the Bible this year, but when you get to Proverbs, you need to steal Judy's material and preach that. <laughs> and I said, okay, did you take good notes? And she said, well, I, I'll give you what I got. So when we get to Proverbs, man, the pressure is off and it's, it's going to be on you again. <laughs> I give credit where credit is due. There you go. And then this morning we kicked off Family February and there was, uh, you know, 150 uh, kids and their moms and dads, uh, about 150 people in that fellowship hall. And every Sunday morning during the Bible classes, all of our little ones, uh, those, those little guys and their moms and dads are getting together as a family and Richard and Kirby and the youth deacons and Cliff is the elder that's kind of working with, with Kirby and, and, and Richard with, with those kiddos. Everybody over there studying God's Word together. What a great weekend. Amen? And I think before we, you know, we're thankful for God's text and, and pray thankfulness to Him, let's, let's ask God to continue to bless our church and be thankful for all the good things that have happened this weekend. Father, our heart overflows. You have led us to still waters. You have led us to green pastures. You have prepared a table for us. You have anointed us in the presence of our enemies, Father. You have been a phenomenal shepherd these last couple of days to our church. And you are every day, but you have manifested yourself in such great ways these last couple of days. Thank you for blessing us and making us aware of the greatness of your being, of your compassion and your mercy, your tenderness, your faithfulness to your people. 
And thank you, Father, for all of these folks that have worked so hard to, to pull these events together. We also, Father, have had a lot of folk that, that have struggled this week with injury and with surgeries. And we pray your healing upon them. Uh, we also, Father, have come together as a family of people who love you this morning and have dedicated ourselves this morning to singing to you and praising you and remembering the greatness of your sacrifice, as Ed reminded us, the greatness of your gift to us, that grace that comes to us, that, that brings us into your presence and allows us for all of eternity to be together. Our hearts just overflow. And as we approach this text this morning, Father, we're asking once again, in the name of Jesus, that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask, Father, to, 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 to move away from this assembly this morning completely different, deeper as disciples, more convicted of the greatness of your grace and, and what it took, Father, for you to love us and to, and to forgive our sins and to bring us back into your presence. We pray for eyes and ears to perceive it. And we pray, Father, for the courage to accept it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, what we've been doing from uh, the beginning of this year in 2014 and going all the way to the end of the year is we're going to study the entire Bible. And one of the things we'll do from time to time is we will look at a book in its entirety and talk about just that book. But the main thing we're going to do as we go from Genesis to Revelation is we're going to talk about the story. You'll remember that the Bible, and we've talked about this a lot, the Bible is not a collection of disconnected, random stories, but one story. It's one story about God, it's about man, it's about what went wrong, and how God is putting it back together. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at that middle phrase in there, how things went wrong and, and why they went wrong and why things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I want to begin with a quote. You, you've never heard of this lady, or I shouldn't say never. Chances are you've never heard of Beatrice Webb. Uh, she lived in the late part of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And she, she was British and she was a socialist and she was one of the architects of the welfare system in Britain. And she helped get that all going. And towards the end of her life, she, she collected her diaries and her writings and put together kind of a three or four volume memoir that, that you can even get today. It's kind of interesting reading. But there's a statement in there after she looks back on all of her work as a, as a, as a socialist in Europe, trying, in, in, in England, trying to get all of this together. This is what she writes. And I quote, In my diary, 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us. And how little we seem to change my greed for wealth and power. And how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things of human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of knowledge or science has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? End of quote. Now that's a heavy statement coming from a person who has a very optimistic view of human nature, at least at one time in her life, and an incredibly profound optimistic view of what it meant to be a human being. But at the end of that 35-year period, Beatrice Webb discovered 
something profoundly wrong with humans that led to corruption and led to meanness and led to violence and led to racism and led to, to biases and led to scandal and it was consistent and it was continual across history. And if you read between the lines, there's a question in there. The question is, who can explain this? Who can explain what is going on with we human beings? Well, the answer to that question is Genesis 3 and 4. Now, when we look at what happened in Genesis 3 and 4, it all begins very, very subtly and very, very simply with contempt. Contempt. Verse 1, Genesis 3, as you know, Genesis 1 and 2 are dealing with the fact that there is a God who is before everything and that that God who is before everything has created everything that we know. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now out of nowhere, out of... Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, Satan is speaking through a serpent, which raises a lot of questions. Who is this evil personality speaking through the serpent? Where did he come from? How did he become the way that he is? How did he get to where he is right now? But the thing that we need to remember about Genesis 3 is that the text is not about Satan. The text is really about us. It's about us and how we got to where we are, and it begins with this. We are reminded that the fall, the fall of mankind begins with an attitude and not an act. Not an action, but an attitude. Not, not a, a behavior, but a way of thinking and, a, and an attitude of the heart. It begins with a sneer, really. It begins with a sniff. In the New American Standard in verse 1, in, you have the word indeed. Did God indeed say? And in the NIV, really which implies sort of a question, but it's not a question if God said it, but it ridicules the fact that God said it. The word there in Hebrew is af, which is the nose. It's Satan kind of looking down his nose as a serpent and sort of sneering at the fact that God said you shouldn't really eat any of these uh, from the, the tree in the middle of the garden lest you die. He's looking down his nose. It's condescending humor. The serpent does not say, did God really say that? He said, did God really say that? How ridiculous, how laughable, how idiotic that God would say that you will die. Notice that Satan is not denying it at all at this point. But he's mocking God's Word. Oh, my brothers and my sisters, be careful at what you laugh at. Be careful at what you laugh at. Humor, especially in our culture right now, humor is hardly ever benign. I don't know why, how we got to where we are right now, but it seems like humor in the United States is like a, a, a lynch mob. You know, it, it, is, it, is, it, it is basically mean-spirited and it is cruel at times. And, but what happens as we begin to laugh at something, we be, the guard begins to go down, and if we're laughing at something, it certainly can't hurt us. And if it can't hurt us, then we begin to embrace it and accept it, or at least learn how to tolerate it and live with it. And so Satan gets sort of this, 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 this slight laughter. Did God really say that? Seriously? Satan gets to laughing at sin, and sin just doesn't look all that, that dangerous anymore to Eve. Now, this is very important. 
the very first step in the, in the world getting to where it is today, the way that things are today, the very first step was an attitude and not an action. It began with an attitude of disdain. It began with a sneer and a sniff. It began with an air of contempt. I mean, there are times when you, know, you run into people out there on the streets, out there at work, sometimes in your, your neighborhood or wherever you interact with people, and you begin to talk to them about your faith. And, and a lot of times they go, do you, seriously, do you really believe in God? I was watching a, a British detective show last night, and they were talking about how one of the characters uh, had been called by some of his Christian friends to, to, to go off and to do some charity work at an orphanage, and the two people sitting at the table talking about it began to kind of chuckle with each other like, oh, that's so ridiculous. Oh, it's, it's just so ridiculous. When you run into that disdain and into that kind of contempt, always remember that those attitudes are not tenable arguments. The way you respond to that is to say, well, okay, so you don't like the idea of God. You don't like the fact that I believe that God exists. But what is your argument for the fact that God is not existing? And then following closely to that attitude, following closely on the heels of that sneer is then the lie. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will what? Die. The lie. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be lie like God knowing good and evil. Now what is the lie here? What is the lie? I mean, literally is. Did God really say that? He knows that you're not going to die. You'll be like God. But what is really the lie? The lie is this. If you obey God, He's going to keep you down. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you're not going to be all that you can be. Notice that in this text, Satan does, he, he never questions the existence of God. Satan does not go after the existence of God or the holiness of God. What he goes after is the goodness of God. And at the heart of the lie is this, that God does not have human best interests at heart. God does not have human best interests at heart. Therefore, you have to take matters into your own hands. You have to do it yourself. That's the lie that got deep, deep, deep down into human hearts and began to destroy people. I know I shouldn't sleep with that person. But I'm sure it'd be great. I know that I really shouldn't spend my money on that kind of stuff, but man, I'd really like to have it. It could be any number of things, but those things would not be a temptation unless there was a piece of the lie that was already in your heart. The lie in the heart of humans convinces us that if we obey God, we just are not going to be happy. And Satan's destruction of human trust in the love and the wisdom of God is the problem beneath all the other problems. If we trusted God's love, if we really deep down trusted God's love for us, then we would not be gossips putting other people down in order to build ourselves up because the love of God would be enough. The presence of God would be enough in our life. Or be obsessive with physical beauty in order to be accepted. Because we know that the Creator of the universe, who was before all things, Genesis 1 and 2, has already accepted us. Or workaholics to get the achievement. Or workaholic to get that, that, that acclaim. Or anxious in life because we don't trust God to get it right when it comes to knowing how our life should go. 
There's the attitude, the contempt, coupled with the lie that now leads to an action. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, what is the great sin here? What's, what's the great sin? The eating of the tree? I mean, what is so wrong about eating fruit from a tree? What's the logic? Suppose they ask God, okay, we recognize the tree in the middle of the garden. We understand completely that you do not want us to eat from it. Why? And suppose God gave him an answer. God looks down at Adam and Eve and he says, here's the deal. If you eat of that tree, then you're going to introduce into the world infinite suffering and unspeakable horrors and never-ending tragedy. And Adam and Eve's eyes get this big and they go, really? <laughs> Never mind. The reason then, if that's the way it happened, or would have happened, the reason then for them obeying, the reason then for them not eating the tree, is cost analysis. It's cost analysis. They're in agreement with God. You're right. It makes sense. I'm not going to eat of that tree because I don't want to disobey God, usher in sin and suffering and infinite tragedy and never-ending grief into the world. Never mind. We're not going to do it. But that does not require any trust or faith in God in the least, does it? Is God's Word, which is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth, is God's Word that all God had to say is, let there be, and it was tov, it was good, that's powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth in the way that God wanted it construction, uh, uh, constructed and, and structured in His mind, if God's Word is that powerful, is it powerful enough then to be trusted? The issue comes to this bottom line. Do we trust God or do we want to be God? And as human beings and Satan kind of gets us the serpent gets that, and in verse 5 he says, you will be like what? God. And, and so they eat. And so they eat. You know, there's lots of, of, of reasons for obeying the will of God. You obey the will of God, saves your life. Saves your life. Keeps you from, from, you obey the will of God, keeps you from a lot of different kinds of sorrows and tragedies in your life. Obeying Proverbs, obeying Scripture, literally can save your life and keep your life from a lot of unnecessary suffering. You're still going to suffer. That's the nature of it. That's, that's the nature of life on the planet as we live it because of the story that we're talking about right now. But obeying God's Word can save you from a lot of unnecessary struggle. But also inherent in, 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 in obeying God's Word, when we do the will of God, behind the will of God is the reminder that we are not ourselves as human beings, God. That we will not be like God, even though we're made in His image. We will not be God because there is only one God and we are His, His creatures. We obey not because we agree, but because God is God. The fall comes because we do what Satan asks rather than what God asks. And we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we here at MacArthur Park, do we here at Mac, obey God because we agree or do we obey God because 
in this particular area we're comfortable? Or do we obey God because of the reputation it might bring us? Or the results that it might shower in our life? Or do we obey God for God's sake? For His sake. I want you to know right now, it's okay to obey everything God wills, even when you don't understand it. It is, obey, it, is, it is okay to obey everything that God wills just because God said so. Now, up to this point, Genesis 1 and 2, God has been at the very center of Genesis and the creation story, the main player, the most important being in the story until now. And then He is moved off stage by the serpent's deceit. Which, which leads us kind of to this final thought. Adam and Eve disobey the Word of God. They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened, and what do they do? This is not a hard question. They what? Hide. They hide themselves. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they, say it, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And what does God do when Adam and Eve hide from Him because of their sin? He asks a question. A question. Verse 9. Now before, now before we, we read verse 9, think, think about this. Think, think about the way that you feel. Think about your temperament. You know, those of us who have children, when your children have disobeyed you and they are hiding from you and, and you know that they have done something really rotten, that they have completely rebelled against something that you asked them or asked them not to do and they've gone ahead and have done it and they are living in complete disobedience to something that you have called them and asked them and commanded, if you command these days, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but when you tell them not to do something, they did it anyway. I mean, sometimes the first inclination is that there's got to be some justice, there's got to be some punishment, there's got to be some consequences. Notice verse 9. God already knows. He has perfect knowledge. He knows what they've done. His first question is, when the sin has entered into the world and has entered into the lives of men and women and they are afraid of the holiness of God and they are hiding themselves from Him, God's first question to them is, where are you? Where are you? You know why we find God in life? It's because God found us. We find God because God found us. Adam and Eve are hiding from God and He calls out, Where are you? God goes after them. I mean, did God really ask that question because He was needing information? The answer to that is no. What God is doing is engaging fallen human beings... And the question is, why does He do it? That goes back all the way to the very first lesson, and the second lesson, actually, when we talk about God and we talk about creation. you got God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in perfect love and in perfect harmony, the Trinity, the triune God, circling each other, adoring each other, bowing down, making the others the center of their life. And they expand that circle to include all of creation and the making of, 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 of the heavens and the earth and the stars and the moon and all of us. Why does He say, where are you? Because that's what perfect love says. The question, where are you, goes all the way back 
to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and what it means for them to be in relationship with each other and to love each other in a holy, righteous, profound way. Where are you? And how does He do it? Adam and Eve are in a garden full of light. It's beautiful. And God says to Adam and Eve, if you obey me about this tree, you'll live. And you will not die. And then many, many, many years later, you have his son who's in the Garden of Gethsemane and it's dark outside. It's dark. And in the dark, God says, if you obey me about the tree, you'll die. And Jesus deals with the sin of the the tree by dying on another tree, the cross, for our sins. The tree of sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God. That tree of salvation, that cross, as Paul calls it in, in Galatians, that tree is putting God Himself in our place. And so there in that garden, before there is a garden of Gethsemane, God turns to the serpent and says, Cursed. Out of all of the things that have been good and good and good and good and very good, God says, you're cursed. And then uh, what many scholars, and I, and I agree with this, uh, called the very first preaching of the Gospel. God says to the serpent, you know what? From the seed of the woman is going to be one that comes and is your, your enemy. Now you may bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And that's what we see God doing oh so many years later at the cross with His Son Jesus. As, as Edward talking about, uh, talked about it at the, the communion devotional, that, that period of time where, where God is pouring out His love on us by pouring His wrath out on His Son so that we don't have to experience that. Now the consequences of our sin we still deal with on a day-to-day basis, but the eternal punishment that we bear for those sins have been put on Him. So that we find ourselves in relationship with our Father once again. That's the greatness of the Gospel. It all went wrong when we put ourselves in God's place. It all begins to be put back to the rights when God puts Himself in our place. For the forgiveness of our sins and for the reception of the Holy Spirit Sins being washed away. Newness of life. New birth. Not just a new leaf, but a new life. And, 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 and the investment that God puts in us to draw us close to Him so that we sense His presence every day is one of the greatest, one of the greatest blessings you can ever even try to wrap your mind around. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you're sensing the greatness of your sin and it's overbearing, and it just feels like a rock tied around your neck, and you've been tossed into the sea, and you're going down and down, and there's no way that you're going to come up except somebody help you, somebody rescue you. That's what redemption is. It's being rescued. 
It's God reaching down and placing His hand on you and pulling you up, not just out of the water, but pulling you up towards Him and to Him. And coming out from under that guilt and coming out from under that burden and coming out from all of that muck and that misery and that grief and that struggle into a newness of life in which sometimes, you know, you, you, we still live in a fallen world, but it's different. It's different because of the presence of God. Ben's going to lead us in that song. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you spiritually this morning, we want you to come forward and talk to these men now. So we stand and praise God together. You're only...